I was joking with my friend who I'm about to record a podcast with as well, and um, we're trying to find a venue that's quiet, and I said, any suggestions? And she said, my dirty car. (laughs) (laughs) There has been many a podcast recorded in cars. I, uh, I can attest to that. Jody Carrington grew up on a farm in rural Alberta. Her parents were high school sweethearts. She and her brother grew up together in a pretty happy place. Then her parents divorced. As adults, she and her brother learned that they had a full biological sister who their parents had given up for adoption before they were born. Jody learned that even when you have a secure base and a safe haven, sometimes you need a little help sorting out your story. For Jody, sorting out her own early story has helped her to be a better writer of the next chapters of her story, the ones called wife, mother, sister, friend, and psychologist. Jody Carrington's story of becoming a psychologist started at Red Deer College. She transferred to the University of Alberta, where she earned a Bachelor of Arts degree with distinction in 1998. Jody then completed a year-long internship during that degree with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and became very passionate about police work and the significant toll that trauma can take on people. She was also lucky enough to spend time working with some amazing families through Ronald McDonald House and volunteering with victim services. She then continued her studies at the University of Regina with the thought of pursuing a career in police psychology. Although she loved that work, her passion began to shift to families, especially those who experienced trauma. She completed her pre-doctoral residency in Nova Scotia in 2006, where she trained primarily in cognitive behavioral and narrative approaches. Jody completed rotations both with adults and children, and she learned that she really enjoyed understanding the stories of children, particularly those who had difficult experiences. Jody returned home to Alberta and accepted a job at the Alberta Children's Hospital in Calgary on the inpatient and day treatment units, a position that would forever change the course of her career. She quickly learned that her cognitive behavioral skills were not enough for kids and families with long and often traumatic stories with multi-generational influences. She needed to connect in order to have any significant impact. Desperate to learn more about attachment, Jody set off on a quest for mentors who got it and has been very lucky to have been influenced by some of the greats. You will hear a lot in her story about attachment. Jody has learned the power of relationship, empathy, connection. She has learned that these are important for anyone who might want to understand their story and shift it in some way, or heal in some way, or repair it in some way, or change their story once and for all, so that their next chapter as teenager, spouse, parent, or friend can be better. Jody has worked with adults and children as well as families, and she shared with me a small chunk of her wisdom in the short time we spent together recording this podcast episode. Enjoy. So have you done podcasts before them? You sound like yeah. an old pro. Well, I don't know if we would go old pro, but certainly uh, I've done a couple, um, you know, and I've done them all kind of like with video, without video. Mm. Um, uh, we've just done one in Australia and one in Slovenia. Um, and um, there's a couple of, like, it's a big deal in education podcast, like lots of um, teachers start podcasts. So mm. um, I've done a couple down in the state. Um, and then there's a really great one. Um, she's She's is small act big impact out of um she's on vancouver island oh okay yeah yeah so few you know the book does that to people yeah yeah no kidding well thank you for taking the time to be on on my little show you're my second guest (laughs) 
that feels right. Yeah, awesome. Um, so, good. so in terms of a timeline, do you have a specific time that you need to wrap up just so I can be mindful of, of that? Sure, yeah. If we, I mean, I have about an hour. So okay. if, that, if we could <laughs> squeeze it in before then, that would be so good. Okay, sounds good. Well, let's, let's start unpacking your brain then and <laughs> we'll have some good laughs, I'm sure. Yeah, so welcome to the Parenting Human Beings podcast. Well, thank you for having me. That's, th this is such an honor. Yeah, I was really excited to talk to you because um, I've seen you speak a few times and what I walked away with the last time, among other things, was just this sense that you have a really clear and specific purpose for coming into this work. You're very unique and you bring a style that is really relatable. And I think mm -hmm. it's really important that you do your thing the way that you do it because you you make attachment theory just so much more palatable to other populations or, you know, I work in a rural setting and, and all of the folks who came out to see you out there, they just, they just loved how you made it so accessible to them with humor and with um, normalizing some of the stuff that parents go through with you know, not feeling adequate and, and all of that stuff. So I really mm -hmm. think that who you are and your authentic way of being is so important and is such a gift to this world. Oh, that's so great. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel like um, for such a long time, even trying to figure out this whole attachment theory, it, I think part of the reason why it, it gets um, bumped up against behaviorism so much is because it is so theoretical. Uh, and there's lots of sort of trying to decipher, you know, what attachment uh, looks like and what disorganized attachment looks like. And then what if you're insecure? What if you're avoiding? What does that mean? Can you fix it? And where are you on a continuum? And I just think it's a it's it's such a bunch of bullshit like it really is about how connected you are uh to your kid and there will be some times where you're going to screw it up yeah end of story yeah. and the more you screw it up the more difficult it is to be able to regulate emotion but it's never ever ever too late yeah exactly yeah exactly so and i mean because we have such a limited time today if if there are other episodes or things you've recorded in other settings and you want to make reference to those so people can check out more of your work, we can include links in the show notes and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, wherever you want to go in this hour, I'm, I'm cool with that. I'd love to hear a bit of your, a bit of your story. Um, well, you have so many good stories to share. Um, but is there anything that's kind of on the newer end of what you've been up to or thinking about or writing about that you know so as not to be redundant with other material material you've put out there already or or anything like that like what's kind of on the what's kind of right now for you oh that's a that's such a good question i uh, well we just launched our book so that um launched on february 14th so that's that whole process has been super fun and um it's interesting that um it um you know, I, I spent two years writing it, and as soon as we published it, I was like, oh, I should add that. Oh, I should put this in there. I should talk more about that. And so a couple of things I think have really come to light as um, it sort of like made its way through the world, and we're so thrilled. We thought we would sell a 1,000 copies in the first, uh, you know, in 2019, and now we're at 12,000 copies, um, most of which we sold out of our garage uh, because we don't have a distributor yet. 
so that's been super fun blowing us all away uh, on this little team of mine. But I think, but I think what's really come to light, even as you know, we've watched the momentum um, rise, is really just this this importance of having a passion. So for whatever you do. Um, we've, we've focused a lot with, with educators lately talking about, um, like if you lose your purpose, you've lost your passion Mm. and people often say this to me, right? Like how, you know, uh, and I mean, not to me, but to many people, I guess, right? Like, how do you do it all? Um, you know, you write a book or how do you have kids and, you know, balance the work life stuff and how do you do all those things? Right. And I think what becomes really easy in this process or my question or my answer all the time is really like, when you find your passion, uh, none of it feels like work. Mm, and yes. there's the stuff that I have to balance, of course, you know, making sure I, you know, make time with my kids and with my husband and make sure that our family becomes our priority all the time. All those things really matter so much. But the balance to that is that um, when I'm away from them, I'm doing something that I'm like, it's so heart filling. Right. Yeah. And I'm crazy about it. So it makes coming back into them even better because I cannot wait to see them and get filled up. And then we do our thing and change in the world. And so I often ask, um, you know, people about what, you know, what is your passion? What is your why? And um, Simon Sinek talks uh, a lot about this in all his work and his first book, which is now old, but it's called, um, you know, Start With Why. Yeah. Really great read. And he, he really speaks a lot about like, so like, what's your deal? Like, why are you on this planet? Like not, not just, um, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a teacher, I'm a yoga instructor, but like, why are you on this planet? Mm. And it's your critical purpose, not just sort of what you do. And I think what's really cool about that is there's a big difference between, you know, people often say, you know, like, well, one of my whys is, you know, to be the best crossfitter. One of my whys is to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here because I'm, you know, I'm supposed to get my degree. Um, I, I think there's a, a really critical difference between having goals and having yes. a purpose. Goals are things that, you know, you can accomplish and achieve and they become part of your story, right? Like, you know, I want to get a degree or I want to be a mom or I want to, uh, you know, those things. A critical purpose is more about, um, is bigger than that. Like, what, why are you on this planet? And I promise people all the time that if you, if you sort of have lost that idea about what your why is, the most powerful whys come in serving other human beings, other mm. people. Yeah. And so if you can uh, articulate that in a way that says, okay, yes, I want to do these things. Of course I want to be fed or I want to, you know, get a degree or I want to, you know, save enough money to go to Hawaii or any of those kind of things. That's great. Like for sure part of your story. And in that profit, in that whole uh, process, what are you here for? Yeah, yeah. And so that critical purpose is really about your, you know, like, who, who are you here to serve? And so oftentimes, because people say this to me all the time, I don't know what my purpose is. Like, I like I don't know. Like, if I, you know, I want to be an advocate for women or I want to leave a legacy for my children. Or like, okay, cool. Um, it doesn't need to be, like, life-shattering, but it will involve um, connecting with people who are uh, – <coughs> walking this journey right Ram Das talks a lot about this is my favorite Ram Das quote he says we're all just here walking each other home hmm yeah isn't that good yeah it's beautiful I love Ram Das <laughs> um mm-hmm. so what's mm-hmm. what's your why how would you do you have like an actual you know mission statement written out or how how would you articulate your your why yeah that's such a good question our team has spent a lot of time having these discussions in effect um, I know you've met, have you met my assistant, Marty? 
I've I've communicated so, with her um, via email and whatnot. Yeah, she's such a friggin' rock star. So she is. Um, she loves you. Yeah, I know. I love her. She, um, w- we couldn't be more different. And um, she's like ten years younger than me. Uh, she, um, we met in a penalty box uh, when we were doing the time, um, like the time clock for our children's hockey game. And um, she is super organized. She came like with the instructions on how to run the clock and coffees for us at 7 a.m. I barely had a bra on, you know, <laughs> and th- this is how this woman rolls. <laughs> and uh, she is so fantastic. And so we've talked a lot about um, what is our why, why, you know, what do we want to do uh, together as a team as we built this? And uh, our husbands uh, are also very much on board. And so for New Year's Eve, we sat down, our kids were playing and we sat down and got, um, uh, you know, those like um, slip chart pieces of paper that have sticky things on them. So we stuck them on our windows and um, started to say, okay, so what's our deal? Like, here's our goals, but why are we doing this? And um, our biggest why, I have two whys. Part my why is really to show um, our children um, that women can be CEOs of companies, that they can be game changers, that they can sit at the table and um, be uh, powerful in our own right. Um, and in the whole context that it's not about an us versus them between men and women. In fact, you know, I have a husband who I love very much and sons who I want to grow up to be amazing. So it's not an us versus them. It's like how do we collectively connect to um, create this effervescence in the world. And um, so, so really uh, to serve that greater purpose is like, I, I'm here to create a reconnection revolution in mm. this world of disconnect. Wow. And as it relates specifically to that sort of gender duality that is still very much a factor in that disconnection. Yeah, you, you, you can't avoid it, right? And I think when you take uh, difficult situations head on, it really is that, that thing about like, okay, how do we do this in a way that um, doesn't create more division, but in fact, inclusion. So like, it, I'm, I also have this quote that I, I live by quotes, but you know, it, it, we talk a lot about this, like we, we come in peace, but we mean business. Mm. Like, 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 don't mess with me, right? So how do you, um, Brene Brown talks about this a, a lot of times too. How do you, how do you have courage over comfort? Because it would be easy, it's easier just to sort of continue in the status quo and like, oh, you know, I don't really want to rock the boat. I don't really want to create a big issue. How do you choose courage over comfort in the time that matters? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. Mm. So has it always been clear to you or how did this come to be that you knew that that was no (laughs) are you kidding me it's never clear to anybody this is work progress there is no end game for this girl (laughs) it's just yeah no i i think everything that you experience shapes you and points you in a direction and you know really like it's it, it keeps coming around until you get it i think and for such a long time i would like I mean, I talked about this even a little bit in the book, right, about I've always been too much for so many people. Like, I remember that even as a kid, right? Like, Jody, can you just be quiet? Jody, oh, my God. Um, here goes Jody again. And um, I always thought of it as such a bad thing, you know? Like, yeah. oh, God, be quiet. And now I'm like, you know, I, I try to dull my light a lot of times, right? And, like, not to be so big, not to be so loud, not to be so whatever, 
And um, it's really kind of cool now coming into this place that that is what defines me. Right. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, you when you open today, you know, I really loved your little opening intro about like, you know, sometimes it is just when you're authentically you, you actually it's so much easier to, to discover your purpose. Yeah, And totally. so I think that it really is sort of an evolution that is always happening. And when it feels right, like you just you just got to do it. You just got to go with it. And um, yeah. And for me, it's taken me a really long time to get here for sure. As it does for everybody. But uh, it's a journey. Yeah, wow. Well, you really touched something in me when you said that, because I have had that experience as well of being too intense for the world. And I know that, you know, Gordon Newfeld has talked about that. I'm sure other people who are really intense, and they gain this sort of following or people really enjoy them because of their intensity. And yet we've all as intense beings been so wounded because as children, we've been told to dim our light or be quiet or shut it down or, whoa, you're too intense. Um, and it just becomes so, you know, from that wounded place, it becomes so apparent for us to be advocates for children to be able to have expression, emotional expression and to, to be who they are. Yeah. No, I think so. And I think what's really helpful in that woundedness, right, in in assisting in that woundedness and healing is really having empathy for why people in our world would have wanted us to dim our light. And I think sometimes we come with this perception that it is because we're not enough, but it is often from a place of protection, Mm. right? They, um, and I, you know, I find myself doing this with my daughter who like looks like me, uh, acts like me, is so much more of a spitfire than her brother's. And I often find myself saying to her, like, live, 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 right? Because I know, I project on her all the time, I don't want her to have to experience what I experience. And so I just want her to know that we really, uh, it's not how I explain it to her, but we really, we really like emotional regulation in this culture. Yes. And so when kids are seen and not heard, and when you, you know, don't ask hard questions, and you sort of like do your thing, I know that she's going to have a less bumpy road. And so my intention is really just to assist her in that process. Now, the perception, as it was for you and I, was that it was because we're not enough. Mm-hmm, so sure. sometimes it, it's really healing when you can get to a place of understanding that the intention was not as sinister as we might have perceived it to be. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, no, that's true. Right. And and it's often, of course, like you said, it comes from a place of projection, right? Like, I'm going to press down on you what I can't invite in myself. I'm not allowed to, you know, put that out there and be who I am. So let's all just kind of jam ourselves into these little boxes, right? Um, Yeah, sorry, I've lost my train of thought there. But um, well, what I think is really interesting about that, though, is it, you know, again, and maybe I'll just, you know, maybe I'll trigger where you were going to go with this. um, Because I think sometimes it's like, we do that to our children or, or perhaps our parents did that to us is it, it not because um sort of in a protective way right mm-hmm. they knew what that felt like and don't want us to feel that way yeah right? and so it's not necessarily that they didn't get to be who they wanted to be which which could be true as well but it really is this sense of like hang on girl i know this is going to be tricky for you i know what it's like to navigate adolescence i know what it's like to navigate uh, you know, trying to sit at a table with, you know, people who don't appreciate uh, powerful women or women with opinions. And um, th- they're right. 
it it was harder than to just toe the line and be the 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 quiet one in in I mean I don't know because I was never that other person but I'm assuming um, that sometimes that is a bit trickier and so of course we want that for our children right yeah, yeah. Um, and so it comes from a protective place I think and and oftentimes now when I look back and think about you know when my dad would you know have conversations with me about okay 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 like you don't need to or like oh Joe. My brother was often very good at this too, like, holy Christ, could you ever? And I think a lot of that really comes from this place of like, hey, I just, I just don't want anybody to, to beat you up. Um, Because at the end of the day, we're all, we we all very much love each other, right? We might not always show it that way, but that, that is, I think, I think, and it's, it makes it easier for me to believe this to be true. and, And I do believe that to be true, is that it comes from a place of goodness. Absolutely. And yeah, you did trigger my thought that I lost there. It was about how it's paradoxical, um, or it's interesting how those individuals whose either lights have been dimmed, or they just kind of tend to have that temperament that's a little more even keel, those are the ones who, in my observation, have been they, they've had more struggle finding that fiery passion that you talk about that you know the why right so it's often these intense people who have an obvious why and everyone thinks they're amazing in adulthood and you know they want to follow them and listen to them and all of that but then um, those people who are saying kind of well I don't know what my why is what we tried to dull out in in childhood you know, the consequence of that is that confusion around not knowing your why, um, or that thing that we revere um, as sort of that, you know, not that go-getter temperament, but sort of that, you know, just, just kind of skate by. That's not what we look up to later on in life, right? So we're not willing to invite what we actually revere in adulthood, in childhood, in children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's so fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think I think what's really critical about that, right, is is as we sort of think about our why now, how critically important it is to be corrective experiences for people, because it really is the people who then I think along the way would have said to me, um, you know, like you're really phenomenal, or I love your spark, or you know, you can make everybody laugh. We want more of you. We want to spend more time with you. Um, it was those corrective experiences along the way that I think, um, you know, a sort of benevolence that allows you to, to sort of make sense of those things that you perceived as wounds. And mm-hmm. so how can you be that reparative, that, that corrective experience for other people? Uh-huh. And we often, we have to do it best with other people's children. Mm. Yeah. Do you understand what I mean? So it's like, it, this is why it takes a village, right? I am mm-hmm. so much better with other people's children yeah. because I have less skin in the game. Yeah. Right, so like when I spend time, so this weekend we'll spend time with my brother's kids and my sister's kids, kid, and um, I will light up like crazy with them. And if they throw a toy or lose their mind or do something, I have all the patience in the world to be like, whoa, whoa, dude, come here, right? Versus my daughter does that or my sons do that, and I'm like, that's it, time out, get over, what? So how do we provide those corrective experiences? It's like we create villages and we spend so much more time, right? You bring your kid to the hockey rink and I'm going to lose my mind over your kid uh, lighting up because uh, they're, I love to coach them and I think they're funny and that they're, you know, making fart jokes. 
I can laugh at your kid. When my kid steps out of line, I hope you're going to do that for him. Mm. Yeah. So when you say less skin in the game, do you just kind of mean because you're so deeply attached, because this is your, you know, literal progeny that everything is riding on them, uh, that that they can trigger you in a way that just hits you so much harder and um, like that you see yourself so deeply in them and closely, you're so closely attached that you just get triggered that much more easily is that what you mean yeah mm-hmm. i mean think about think about i don't know um you know i often say this to people when you think about um if you have children and uh, you watch your parents with your children oftentimes we look at our parents with our children and think like holy shit like where were you when i was growing up they tend to have an easier time kids often um are much more endeared to their grandparents right i want to live with grandma uh because grandma has a much easier job of saying and now as a grandparent, come here, come here, my muffin, mommy's being mean, I'll give you the treat, right? <laughs> uh, because she knows she gets, to, she gets to give him back. Yeah. Right? I can be the sweetheart. I can get the connection so much easier um, because uh, there's less concern about, okay, well, you'll figure the, the hard stuff out. Um, and in that process, you end up gaining so much influence. Yeah. 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 Parents are just carrying so much stuff with regard to the Mm -hmm. future of their child. And yeah, it's just really heavy. And I've I've heard that in a lot of traditional models, like more tribal societies, that it actually was the grandparents who had more of a a guiding sort of disciplined parenting type role that has been downloaded to parents, modern parents, for that very reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, anybody who you put into a position of authority who, who sort of it rules um, it, the harshest, you know, sort of can then become um, the, the one that becomes difficult to connect to, right? And so how do we just build in those times, particularly more discon- how we become more disconnected these days? How do we build in those times um, for joy? Yeah. Right? How do we build in those times to remember that, yes, okay, of course, we have to set limits and boundaries and rules. Those things are critical. And you're so much more effective in that capacity when you remember to light up. Mm-hmm. And it's the hardest thing to do, right? When we're tired and overwhelmed and we have so much on our plates and, you know, you just want to get them to bed, and, um, which we all do every day of our lives. And so how do we remember in those moments that it's just like, how do we find those times that we're building in those times to really look and see our children, our partners, um, you know, being able to, um, you know, attend to, um, yes, there's a thousand things to do. Can you take five minutes and sit down and play a game of war before it's school? And what is that? what's the payoff in that? Yeah, yeah. I love the language of light up. It's just so intuitive. And I think people can understand what you mean by that, right? Like just light up for the existence of this person. Yeah, I think, I think, um, you know, I, I often talk about that when we are, uh, um, that quote, um, like Yuri Bronsenberger talked about, like it's uh, any, the only thing a kid needs is somebody to be crazy about them. Absolutely. Right. And, and what he's really talking about in the crazy is, is the light up, right? That yeah. irrational kind of lose your friggin' mind. Oh my God. You know? And we are usually so much better at that with other people's children. Mm-hmm. Or we get really good at that when we're on our second date with our partners. Right? Yeah. Um, 
but we're not good at that after we've been married for 25 years and we own three kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, totally. Kind of when it matters the most. Yeah. Yeah, that skin right? in the game concept. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I use skin analogies all the time. It makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so what about your, uh, <laughs> I'm like, wow, Jody Carrington. Um, so where did the book title come from? I mean, I guess it's, um, it's an expression. Do you find that people actually use that expression nowadays or? Oh God, all the time. Yeah. yeah. Like when I say, I, I often say to people, like, tell me what, what do they say about kids these days? Mm. Right. And you, you can answer that question real quick. I mean, people try to be all kind about it, but like most of the time it's like, what do they say about kids these days? Well, they say they're lazy and they don't know how to work and that, you know, they come to job interviews with their, um, with hoodies on, like who does that? <laughs> and, um, you know, like we're, we're really concerned about their capacity to work and focus and get off their devices and that's what we say about kids these days, right? And they're really disrespectful and they're really unappreciative, all of those things. And so, in fact, the first the, the title of the book for a really long time was First, Last, and Always, um, because, you know, the, the whole premise is all we need is the light up. All we need, First, Last, and Always, is somebody to be crazy about each other, all of us, and we're going to be okay. Um, and then my editor was like, hey, just a sec, like, what we're really talking about is our perception of kids, mm-hmm. this next generation. And... Um, I say in there, like, um, I've never met, you know, I've assessed and treated over a thousand kids in this country, and I've never met a kid, not one time, who's bad. Yeah. I've met a lot of kids who are um, dysregulated. I've met a lot of kids who don't think they matter, um, who are really struggling to try to figure out who they are, what they are, what they want to be, their critical purpose, just like all of us. And when you have a prefrontal cortex that's not nearly fully developed, um, it becomes a fucking problem. I mean, sorry, it becomes a hard thing to do. You're going to have to beat that up. It's gonna be, it, it becomes a really... Oh, no. We're keeping all the F-bombs. <laughs> it becomes a really, really difficult thing to do for these guys, right? And so then we get panicked. Then we get panicked as parents, right? Why aren't you disrespectful? Why don't you want to spend time with me? What is wrong with you, right? And there really isn't anything wrong. Their brains are developing, um, and they're not fully developed until they're 25, Um, And they're trying to figure out who they are and what they want and what they need. And we put a lot of pressure on them, particularly during adolescence, to figure that stuff out. And often now that we're becoming more and more distressed and dysregulated in our own right, um, we have less and less time to connect Mm -hmm. and help them through that process, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's a super catchy title. I think it'll probably draw people in just based on that. Because it's like, wait, what about kids these days? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. We, we, uh, we're in chapters, uh, in lots of different chapters now, so it's really cool. I, yesterday I dropped some off in Calgary, and um, there was a poor woman trying to buy the book. And so I came up to her, and I said, oh, my God, you should really buy that. That's a really fucking good book. Did and she, she recognize goes, you? <laughs> yeah, then she turned the, I look at my pictures on the back, and so, so she turned, she's like, oh, is this you? I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> So then she said she was going to buy two, so that was really helpful. So I feel like I should just hang out in most chapters locations and freak people out yeah just (laughs) swear at them with exuberance to buy the book and then offer to sign it this This will change your life i promise (laughs) that's awesome 
So where did the impetus come to write this book? Like, did you just kind of have it inside of you? You had these things to say or? Yeah, that, that's such a good question. No, I never thought after I finished my PhD, uh, the dissertation almost killed me. So I swore to God that I would never write another word in my life. <laughs> and um, I even stopped doing assessments because I hated writing reports. Um, but I, I, uh, it's interesting, like I kind of explained the whole process in the book, because when I started consulting with educators, um, it became super clear to me. And it, and it was the same time our children started school. So Asher was in grade one, the twins were going into to pre-K, things were sort of happening, and I was spending more and more time with educators. And I started to think like, wow, like some really important stuff happens in the walls of our school. Mm-hmm. And um, we do very little to support them. And so there was a, a big tragedy, um, you know, sort of near our community. And I just watched the school division uh, try their business to deal with it. And I just thought, oh my gosh, we're worried about the kids all the time. And we're not worried about the people who hold them. And that was such a, you know, a concern for me when I would consult with child family services um, and look after kids who had been, you know, um, apprehended or were in care, we would give these babies all kinds of services. But when I would say, hey, can I speak to foster mom? Can I, you know, go hang out with, you know, bio dad on, on reserve? Can I, you know, sit down and just meet with, with mom, um, you know, one-on-one? Um, there was huge pushback to that because the concern is the child, right? Yeah. And the concern for me then as a child psychologist is, listen, I can keep your kid in therapy till they're 65, but if I return them to, to a war zone every night, if I return them to people who don't believe they matter, then it's a waste of time. Absolutely. So if you'd like to fund me to see babies, like for sure you can do that, but, but it's, it's not going to be helpful. And it's really how our system is set up, right? Even our education system, um, child and family services, any of those kind of things, right? We want to serve the children. And we've got to start to have an understanding that to best serve children, we've got to look after the people who hold them. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes so much sense when you understand attachment, right? It's, mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. costs so much money. We're so focused on mental health therapists or, you know, just therapists or professionals in general. And, you know, where can I get the funding? There's not enough support and it costs $200 an hour. And let's get this kid eight sessions when realistically he needs to come into right relationship with his family, right? His the people who take care of him and if his family isn't willing to show up then the teachers right so I totally agree agree with you Um, sometimes though of course right some of those adults just aren't there and they're not willing but there's got to be somebody in the community that can hold this child right well and I think so much of it is there's there's a big difference between assessing a child and treating a child and so when we sign up for eight or 10 sessions, we're talking about treating and we often treat before assessing. Mm. Um, and that's like a, that, that's terrible, right? Cause if I don't know what I'm doing, if you, if you've got anxiety and I just start to treat it, uh, with deep breathing or some uh, other behavioral approach, if I don't know why it's there, um, then I'm making a big mistake and taking that fence down. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that alarm was there as a mechanism of protection and you take that away wow you're it's like a distrust in the system yeah yeah mm-hmm. like i don't i don't want to treat stuff unless i want to know like i want to know why it's there and we don't do a really good job of that right we see if the kid this kid is anxious or this kid is depressed okay we've got to give them strategies to get through that and um which is always helpful but i want to know why it's there 
Yeah. Uh, because often, even if I treat the symptoms, um, if I don't treat the underlying cause, um, it's not going to help. Yeah. And then kids start to tell stories in their heads that they're the problem because they're the ones being drugged to therapy or they're the ones who mm. are on medication or they're the ones who, you know, are being sort of the focus of the um, connection, the attention, um, and they're not the problem. So true. And they get pulled out of class and it's embarrassing. And yeah, meanwhile, their own inbuilt system has these mechanisms of protection for very good reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so true. We've been so off course for so many years. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you see that as the issue being rooted in behaviorist thinking? Well, here's the thing. Um, for a very long time, we've been concerned about human behavior. So um, since the dawn of time, right, it's like, how do we alter the behavior of those human beings? And um, behaviorism really sort of rose out of that concern. And what what was clear is that you can alter the behavior of animals. You can then really successfully alter the behavior of human beings. And so we practiced initially on animals, right? And so they, they watched. If you shock a rat, it stops doing what you don't want it to do. And if you feed it colored water, it does more of that. And the truth behind behavioral interventions is that they work. Without a doubt, if I have a big enough motivator, I can get anybody to do anything. The question is, what does it leave you with? And in previous generations, we had much more opportunity for proximity and relationship to assist in making behavioral interventions effective because I could repair when I hurt you. I could uh, talk things through when I took stuff away. Um, But now with our lack of proximity, I can take stuff away and it can work in the moment. The question is, what does it leave you with? Mm -hmm. So if I have a big enough motivator, I can get anybody to do anything. So if your big motivator is, you know, your children, if I, if I have the power to take them away, I can do, I can get you to do anything. Yeah. And the deal is oftentimes with kids is that initially you have a lot of power because you take away iPads and iPods and uh, time with friends and all those kind of things until eventually those things don't matter anymore. And what you've left them with, and you can't take away enough stuff from a kid to be kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, uh, to get them to be kind and so the, the issue is then what are we missing and what we're missing is connection mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and then also the byproduct of that in the long run is yeah like you said kids who just can't afford to care they don't know what their why is they don't know what they're, mm-hmm. they're going to do after um, high school or whatever it is right and if they've just been kind of manipulated with rewards and punishments yeah it's just and again i think what's really cool about that is it you know as as we even sort of talked about for us is that you know parents with the best of intentions are doing what they know and so you know i don't even think it's an attempt to manipulate i think it's an attempt to give our children you know the best possible outcome they can and so what we, we do what we know Right. And so in previous generations, um, this is how we were raised. And it's effective when you live in a 500 square foot house because you spend a lot of time with each other. So when I say, hey, dude, look at me, Uh -uh. you can't do that tonight. You you know, you don't get to play this game or you don't get that. That's cool because you're all really close and connected and you can help them make sense of that. Mm-hmm. The more, the less and less we have proximity, the more that's becoming a problem. But it's not that, you know, parents are, are doing anything um, intentionally. Intention, yeah. in, right? Intentional. They're, they're doing the best they can with what they got. And all they want 
is their kids to be happy. All they want is for their babies to to make good choices and be kind and do well in school. And in order to do any of those things, you have to um, have emotional regulation and relationship. Mm-hmm. So this lack of proximity is really what's messing us up. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever gone through kind of a period where, you know, you didn't quite have that empathy for, for parents and sort of their underlying good intentions and that like have you ever been frustrated with you know everywhere you look there's punishment and ah like or like what was it that kind of brought you delivered you to this place because I think there can be you know a big divide between people who've discovered relationship-based practice and ways and theory and then sort of it creates that duality of like those people over there that are all high and mighty and are preaching about connection and then there's us parents in the trenches over here who you know you don't understand me and that sort of thing so like how'd you how'd you get to that place of really feeling for for people and and getting that they're really truly coming from the the you know they're doing the best that they can Mm. Um, I don't, I, yeah, it, it's such a great question. I, I don't think it's an end game. I think it's a constant battle all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I hear teachers say this all the time, you know, they get really frustrated with, um, you know, they, they end up sort of spending so much time with, with children and, and really loving on these babies and then get really hurt when they see, you know, parents' um, difficulties in that regard. And I think it's never, ever an end game for me. I always get frustrated, like, every day. Um but the most powerful tool on the planet is empathy. Hmm. And the hardest part about that is that like, you can't give it away unless you've received it. So, so much of my job, I think, is to, to have as much empathy as I possibly can. Is there moments where you have to take charge? Yes. Is there moments where like, it, I lose my mind and we sort of step out of that? Oh my goodness, like all the time. Hmm. Um, but what always serves us well, or serves me well anyways, is, is how do you get back to that place of empathy and just wondering even for a minute. I mean, Stephen Covey talked about this decades ago, right? Seek first to understand before being understood. Yeah, and I mean, that's a beautiful mantra for adults. <laughs> uh, do you have a particular practice that you do? Or is like, is it about you know, your relationships with other adults or your supports or just, you know, doing what you love or what kind of, what do you do that brings you back to that place of having the capacity? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So there's, there's a few things that we talk a lot about in, or that I talk a lot about in the book that I think really have, have taught me things. And it's really my learning from other people, but it really is, you know, I often talk about this to, you know, who are your bottom hands? Who are the people who, whose opinions really matter to you? Um, you pick four or five of those and really choose them well, and the rest don't score. Because there'll always be lots of opinions about who you are, what you do, and if you're too big or too loud or too much. You decide who you want to live well for, who you want to impress, who you want to be most proud of you, and, and you conduct yourself in, your, in a manner that you're living only for them. Actually, that was one of the... the- the most impactful things that you said when I saw you speak last um, mm-hmm. that hit me that actually did something that transformed something in me. I think I got it at a deeper level because as a, you know, neurotic, perpetual people pleasing um, mm-hmm. person who's been kind of 
I guess, just trained to look outside of myself for feedback about whether I'm doing good enough and that sort of thing. Really early childhood wounds kind of stuff um, has created that. And I've been working with that for years and years, of course. Um, but I loved how it was. And, and what I found in sort of, I guess, like the spiritual movements or the new age movements or self-help movements is that the message was always the opposite. It was about, you know, don't care about what anybody thinks, just decide for yourself, be self-referencing and all of that, which I think I resonated with intellectually at times, but it was really hard to put into practice. So what I liked about yours was you, you recognize and honor that we are beings of connection. We have to look into someone else's eyes for feedback about how we are and whether we're good enough and loved. It's just that you limit those to the five most important attachments as opposed to putting yourself out there. Um, I mean, as a as an author, as a you know big name speaker now, I'm sure you get a lot of people commenting and not all of them are nice comments online. And that's that's the nature of the internet nowadays is, you know, just people spewing hate and that sort of thing, right? But if we decide to limit um, you know, that who we, who we allow to make those opinions about us to those five most important people, it's really, it's really protecting, but it doesn't kind of isolate us. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, like, I'll just add to that too. Lately, I was, um, I've just been listening to a lot of, uh, John Maxwell books. And so he does a lot of stuff in leadership. And what I love the most about him is that he says, you know, let me be clear that it's not about having a hardened heart, that it's not about just sort of choosing for people and the rest can go to heck, right? Like you really have to pay attention. There will be a time where critical feedback is important mm. and how you sort of remain open to that matters. And and again, like lots of people talk about this, you know, Brene talked about, uh, you know, strong back, soft front. Mm. And it's like, no, like this, this is what matters. Unless you're here with me in the arena, your opinion don't that you're in the cheap seats telling me that I'm not enough or too much or I said, you know I swear too much or all that kind of shit like too bad. Uh, but if you're in the arena with me and you can say to me, "Hey Joe, I feel like this is really important. This message is so critical, and how you do that I think matters. Be very careful here at this part." And those things, yes, I, I how do we how do we choose that? And and I think what's really critical is, um, you know, really relying on your four or five. You know, what would my grandfather say about that? What would uh, my brother say about that? Or who's who's ever in your five, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's yeah, that's really that's that's a critical piece. Yeah. No. Thanks for clarifying the piece around hardness, because yeah, we never want to be, you know layering up and hardening in order to protect ourselves that would totally defeat the purpose of the message and the recognition that we are these creatures of connection but yeah it, it we can't allow it to destroy us right like those cheap seat comments <laughs> yep because otherwise you wouldn't be able to do what you need to do and live out your why if you allowed every one of those little comments to to kind of break your soul. Absolutely, 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, that was a really, really powerful, 
powerful message because we are so connected with the internet these days. There's so many opinions and so much feedback coming at us and so much of it is contrary that I think it can be debilitating, especially for people who want to go out publicly and, and say things. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the other thing I really wanted to invite you to speak about was just grief, because I think that you're, what you've said about grief is really, really powerful. It's really touched me. And I think it's a message that people really need to hear. Um, I, of course, there's a lot of it there, but just kind of in a nutshell, what are some of your thoughts on how we help children navigate more profound grief, like grief and loss and that sort of thing? Mm. Well, I think um, what's really, uh, the first thing I think that often comes up for me is, is really, you know, if you're old enough to love, you're old enough to grieve. And we often um, are confused about, you know, how how old does a kid need to be to grieve? And I think, um, you know, there's no, when you're old enough to love, you're old enough to grieve. So this really applies to all babies. And I think, Ellen Wolfelt um, makes a, a huge distinction distinction sorry between grief and mourning, and um, it was the first time that I really really understood that. And you know, grief is that instinctual response that we all have. Mourning is how you heal, and mourning you must be taught how to mourn. And there's something so critically important in ceremony and connection um, when we are grieving somebody we love. Um, and in that community of connection, um, that's where the mourning happens. And that's how we show babies how to do it. So we do bring them to funerals. And, you know, when we sort of go over to our friends' houses to get through those first hard days, um, it's important that the kids are a part of that because you're showing them how to do it. You can't tell anybody how to regulate emotion. You can't tell anybody how to do really hard things like um, how to have empathy or kindness. You have to show them. And um, mourning is uh, the exact same thing. Yeah, well, and I think it's kind of like what you said earlier about we we are coming from a good place. We as adults in society come from a place of trying to protect the child. Like, oh, I don't want to. It's like an inside out when the character Joy says sadness. You know, you're going to make Bing Bong feel bad if you bring up his sadness. And if you want to talk about totally. those things yep. that are sad. And yet if we don't create the space to go into that for others, then we actually block their adaptive functioning so to to uh to try to sanitize everything and make it happy and protect the children uh we're actually getting in the way of their grief process their healing mm-hmm. yep yeah yeah i thought that was so beautiful how you just how you said that you know if you're like at what age because people ask at what age do you take a child to a funeral right and it just from this perspective, it's kind of like, hmm, that's kind of an an interesting question. It's like, why wouldn't you take the children to a funeral? There's a loss, and we've all been touched by this. Yeah, you betcha. Hmm. Anything else about about grief or? No, I think. I mean, I think that that's probably. Uh, that's a lot. We went through a lot <laughs> to digest in this little time. So I think I think that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, we've kind of hit on some of the high points. So anything anything else you want to say about about your book? Um, anything to kind of entice readers without you know giving too much of it away, but just 
kind of in a nutshell, what what would you say about about your book? Um, well, I'm happy to give it all away. That's kind of the point. Um, I I love to talk about it all the time, but it's um, uh, yeah, we're just we're blown away by the response, and it really is just all about relationship and connection. And so I wrote it for educators, but the feedback that we get all the time is that um, it's really applicable to anybody and um, to parents or to anybody who owns a kid or teaches a kid or uh, leads um, in an organization. um, Relationships are kind of a universal message. And so, um, yeah, I would, uh, I would love your listeners thoughts on it. Um, There's, uh, we always are watching our, um, you know, for feedback and our, we have a good read site where people are putting up all their reviews and we just we love to, to hear about it. The second book is already in the works. And so I want to make sure that we, um, uh, we're going to do the audio book record, start recording for the audio book, um, next week. And so I'm going to add a few, um, a few, uh, a little bit of content to each chapter. So I'm really excited about that. So, uh, yeah, I love it. You can order it online on our website and um, we have it in, in a number of chapters, locations, and um, in sort of in our little area in Calgary and Edmonton and Red Deer. So um, I'd love your listeners to read. And are you going to be reading the audiobook? Yeah. Yay! I was like, it has to be your voice. It has to be your voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're really excited about that. It's going to be a fun process for sure. Are, are there any... Um, is it is it mostly like informational style? I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I definitely need to to get my hands on that soon. I I imagine that it would be you know like a an easy read in the sense of like relatable. I'm hearing kind of your voice coming through, super down to earth, funny stories, that kind of thing. Um, is it is it? Yeah, I write I write how I talk. Yeah. Yay! Awesome. <laughs> I, I'm sure that's probably had a lot to do with the really positive response because yeah you're one of the most down-to-earth um parent educators whatever you want to call yourself um parent expert (laughs) oh thanks i appreciate that that's great yeah yeah so um are are there any sort of processes in the book like guided guided processes or anything like that exercises or is it more like um information and then and stories and kind of digest it and take it take it in as you will yeah there's lots of stories and and processes and then at the end of every chapter there's a highlight reel so that you can just sort of go back and take a look at you know some of the things that that i think are important when we're talking when we're talking about relationships and connection and trauma and grief and then we have a bit of a plan for educators um in the second last chapter um about sort of how to move forward oh that's awesome yeah because oftentimes with with books or with theory it, it can be hard to translate it right so um no that's cool that you've kind of added that extra invitation for inner work or inner contemplation yeah yeah mm-hmm. awesome well we're we're getting kind of close to the the point of needing to wrap up or the hour here um Anything else you wanted to to add that I didn't have a chance to ask you about, or? Ah, uh, no, I don't think so. I think it was it was great. I'm just so uh, I'm so glad you asked me, and uh, no, it's always so, so great to connect. So thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, I I highly encourage people to to check you out because just in person you have such a a beautiful presence, and I just 
think the thing about you that speaks to me the most and to other people as well is your authenticity. Um, so, yeah, just I think you're definitely in the right place. Um, your why has served you well in terms of taking you mm -hmm. to where you need to be in order to to just walk alongside parents and educators. And I think, I don't know if that's just a heart calling or if that's a s strategy, but I think it's really um, probably one of the most important places to go is, is to work with educators. Because if you think about it, every child goes to school. And if children can get a bulk of their attachment needs met at school, then it can transform society as a whole, right? Even if even if kids go back to, like you said, that war zone, right? If they can, if they can have a place to thaw out, if they can have an end of the day, maybe that's their teacher, right? Every mm -hmm. adult matters. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to serve teachers and to to touch their hearts so that they can have their hearts open and be focused on connection as opposed to the curriculum and all those other things they have going on. So yeah, for sure. So I don't know if that was a, you know, strategy move or if you're just being guided or, or what, but. Yeah, I'd say a little bit of both. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I honor you in your pursuits there. So mm, thanks so much. Do you have any upcoming events that people can check out or what are you up to? Yeah, all of, our, all of our events are, are up on the website. Um, we have uh, a number of really fun things coming up, some reconnection events. Um, I do a big thing for teachers in, in August in Red Deer, um, getting relit before they step back into the classroom. That's on August 23rd. And we do a big fundraiser with the um, Advocacy Center um, in uh, Red Deer, the, the Central Alberta Advocacy Center in May. Uh, in Red Deer, and then we have a Mother's Day event uh, happening uh, on May 11th in um, Calgary. I think there's a couple of, a few tickets left for that. Yeah, so those are the big things coming up. Oh, cool. So what's the Mother's Day event about? Is it just kind of a workshop or? Yeah, it's a, it's a Women's Day. Um, I have a, a number of um, female entrepreneurs who I adore that are going to join us and do some pop-ups. And, um, yeah, it's a, the, the theme of the day is uh, Well-Behaved Women Never Made History. Ah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so it's going to be a full day in Calgary, so we're really excited about that. Oh, that sounds really fun. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well we, will, um, we can link to your website, and people can check you out, and you have um, kind of video blog-type things that you do and all sorts of little little yummy things correct you betcha yep and every sunday night we do a live on facebook and instagram at eight o'clock and uh, just talking about well right now we're talking about the book and um or well, whatever just kind of you know, lots of parenting stuff lots of grief trauma all of those things kind of pop up on the mm -hmm. on our lives um on sunday night so yeah we got all that stuff going on cool cool um anything you want to mention about the second book or is that kind of a top secret knowledge yeah no I, I haven't started writing it yet we've got the outline for it uh 2020 is the goal to start writing oh, that wow. is called hello hero uh so far it's for first responders and spouses um um so we're we're yeah that's my that's my big love so i i'm really excited to jump into that work but we um we've got a lot to get sorted out between now and then but yeah that's the goal wow okay so it's a it's a book that's meant to support those who support first responders is that right you betcha. Oh, okay. Interesting. 
yeah in your um in your knowledge has there been anything similar that's been published for that type of audience ever no wow no, there's, there's okay. a couple of really good stuff yeah like Kirschman has written a, a number of things called i love a cop and i love a firefighter and so there's lots of um lots of ones in the states a couple of really great resources in the states um and uh one really good um yeah but n- nothing that i've seen and there's no program nationally um in any of our first responder um uh, sort of organizations, police, fire, uh, paramedic, EMS that um, that have a formal um, sort of educational support system for uh, spouses. So, wow. so we've got a lot of work to do, but I yeah, but I'm super excited about it. Wow, no, that's a really really interesting niche market, right? And you clearly uh, it's needed, right? When you think about um, individuals with mental health issues and stuff, it's often the family members that are just you know, struggling without support and yeah, lots of reaching out there and not being met with much substance. So I think that's much needed. You're going to be, you're going to be busy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you, thanks so much for this. This was so great. Yes, you're welcome. It, it kind of flew by, but um, yeah, thank you so much for spending the time with me. And I think listeners will really enjoy this. And I encourage everybody to, to just check you out and and to see you live if possible you're you're pretty active as a speaker so you know they should be able to catch you at some point um in and around alberta or wherever you wherever you go yeah great well that's awesome thank you so much yes thank you so much jody and i hope to see you again um and i really look forward to reading your book and maybe i'll wait for the audiobook to come out so i can have it delivered to me in your voice and with your humor. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Okay, take care. Thank you so much. And yeah, um, you too. And I'll I'll maybe hit Marty up then for uh, just a, a bio and picture and all of that. Um, you bet. Or your website. She has it all for you. Perfect. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay. You too. All right. Bye bye. Bye for now.